Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Welcome to the Living the Dream with Curveball Podcast, a show where I interview guests, teach, motivate, and inspire. And today, you guys are in for a treat because I am joined by storyteller, writer, entrepreneur, workshop facilitator, educator, and problem solver, Sam Biara. Straight out of Canada, Sam engages people in their personal and professional development. He, he has mentored hundreds of people and he has been recognized by the Canada Governor General. Hopefully I'm saying that right, but for all the work that he's done, the great work, Sam has even been to India and he's going to be telling you why throughout this interview. So Sam, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on here, Curtis, and it's a pleasure. And I look forward to sharing some stories and insights and hopefully things that your listeners will be able to take away. Absolutely. Well, why don't you start off first of all by telling everybody a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Curtis, I think the best way for me to describe who this person is, is, you know, there are five things that guide and direct me in life. Servant leadership, story sharing, activator igniter, champion enabler, and community do-gooder. Those five things have enabled me to help individuals, teams, organizations, educational institutions, and nonprofits to their pinnacle best. But it has also made me into many of those things that you suggested is a speaker and a storyteller, a mentor and a coach, a writer and blogger, educator, problem solver, you know, working with as a community activator. So that's this person that you see today who's focused on the journey that has been his life that has gotten him to where he is today. And it's really been interesting because for the most part, I really don't feel I have a job or career. I've, I've had fulfillment and it's a great place to be. And I you know, look forward to the opportunity of sharing how we all have a capacity to potentially get to that area of fulfillment. Well, tell us how you got started. You wear several hats. How did you get started in doing yeah. all this stuff? Let's start with that first story. Sure. Well, you know, it's one of those, my story was no different than many people. We've it's a narrative that many of us have lived. I mean, in preschool, a question was asked of us, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, you know, we picked these honorable jobs of an astronaut, a teacher, a doctor, a fireman, et cetera, et cetera. And slowly, as you go through life as a student and uh, high school into post-secondary, practicality sets in. And next thing you know, you're sitting there going like, what am I going to do? Well, I remember sitting at graduation and was one of those things that the hardships and the obstacles I encountered have really filtered to make me who I am today because, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I sat at graduation and I said to myself, okay, I guess I'm going to finish my degree and I'm going to move on. And I graduated in business and political science. And I said, okay, who's lucky to get me, which company? So I started applying for jobs. And I remember back then, you know, you used to write letters or, or mail letters. And I remember I had sent out 12 letters shortly after I graduated, and one of those companies was going to be lucky. A couple of weeks later, later, one of the letters arrived back, and it said, you know, thank you for applying. We don't have a job for you, but good luck. Well, 
next thing you know, I was like, well, that's okay. You're not lucky, but I'm going to send three more letters out to different companies. And it became like the tide. The more letters I sent out, the more rejections came back to the point where I had 86 rejection letters in a short time. 86 companies that said, we don't have a job for you. We're not sure what you're looking for. Good luck. And it's shifted from, you know, am I, you know, who's lucky to get me to, am I lucky to get a job? But I did get my first job and it was an entry-level government job. So my first job was emptying rubbish bins and mopping floors in a hospital as a janitor. It's a job that materialized. So I have a degree on my wall and here I am doing the housekeeping duties And I just remember, instead of looking at it as a problem, I decided to look at it from a different lens. And when I looked at it through a different lens, there were three life lessons that I pulled that I still carry with me today. The first lesson, my father said, I don't care what you do for a living. You just have to do the best job possible because your reputation is online. Well, there was no floor cleaner than at the end of my shift and no rubbish bin left full. I put my heart and soul into being the best janitor I could. I carry that today with anything I do. I pour my heart and soul into it. The second valuable lesson, there were times where I would get on an elevator with nurses, doctors, and administrators who are professionals, and I'm a janitor, and I'd be ignored. I know what that feels like to be ignored. I, as a result, talk to everybody, and this is why it's been three to eight conversations a week. It's been about 5,000 to date because I never want anyone to feel like they're left out or they're not good enough. So I talk to everybody. And the third valuable life lesson is this mindset of opportunity over problem. And what can I gain out of this? And I went in with this mindset, which made me realize that in anything that we do, instead of looking at it as the obvious, What can I learn from this situation? And I do that even today is anything that I embrace and I do, I learn from. So you can see where it started out. And what's really fascinating is those 86 rejections that I hold on to. It literally is, I still have the letters and it's literally the size of a brick and weighs about as much as a brick. If one of those letters would have materialized, I wouldn't be with you today because my life would have gone in a different direction, different trajectory. The second interesting thing is many of those companies no longer exist. I still do. I outlasted the companies. And it's a reminder to all of us that we are resilient individuals, but we have to have a solid platform and mindset. And it sort of leads me into what you had shared and asked. I needed to provide that backstory because when I did eventually progress along and into that corporate job, I just realized that corporate job never fit. I could do it, but it just didn't fit. So I started focusing on who I am instead of what am I doing. And when I started focusing on who I am, I realized the job I was in just never fit. And it suddenly meant that I needed to shift and change into something else. And I came up with, and this is something that I hope will help your your listeners, The way that I came up to this clarity about who and not what, I looked at it as what are the five things that I'm not willing to compromise in life and career? So I laid down a foundation of five things, which those five things I shared at the very beginning have changed over time. But that foundation, when I laid it in the beginning, I looked at it and I said, this job I'm currently doing doesn't line up. But what does line up is an opportunity that I then focused on, which then hit five out of five. 
And when I hit five out of five, I didn't have a job or career. That was the first time I hit fulfillment. And I realized I was doing something that didn't feel like work. But I laid down the foundation first. And then I started focusing on, okay, what resonates with this foundation? So I hope that that provides a bit of an understanding of the backstory, Curtis, of where I have wound up today by focusing on who I am, not what I'm going to do. Absolutely. And you've actually done so much good work in your community and all around the world that you've been recognized by the, was it the Governor General, General yes. of Canada? So tell yes. us. Yeah. who that is and, and, and what that was like and what that means to you. Yeah. Well, Canada is still a commonwealth of the British Empire, or not the British Empire, but uh, the United Kingdom. And the Governor General of Canada is the Queen's representative in Canada. So it's a, it's a high position in Canada. And the Governor General's awards, the two that I've received from them, was for this community service that I've done. The mentorship and coaching, which has been about 5,000 conversations to date, working with about, I've done work with about 50 nonprofits over the last 20 some odd years to help them to start becoming more entrepreneurial. And, you know, some of them have spanned years of, of service to these organizations. The realization for me is there's a need for me to be active in the community and not be a bystander in life. And as a result of that, that's where the recognition and acknowledgement came from. And, and it's, it is exactly that. It's a, it's a recognition and acknowledgement, but it is, it's also a reminder not to stop. This is, this is a point to say you've been acknowledged or recognized for the work you've done. Keep going. And that's what I've done over the years is kept on going as a result. But th- that's what those two awards are. Well, speaking of keeping on going, tell us about your youth career platform that you help co-found. Tell us what that's about and what that does up in Canada. Yeah. So having these conversations with so many young people who seem to be lost to 15 to 40 year olds who, you know, are trying to find their journey, their pathway. And, you know, so having these conversations I remember one of the people I mentored and coached had come up to me and he said, look, you know, you've, you've um, done all of this work. What would you like to do? And I said, well, there's not just this, the university where I teach. There's so many people who are feeling lost and really feel that there's a need here for us to support them. And he and I both sat down and then we co-founded a company called Gratis One. So Gratis is Latin for step. So step one in the journey of these individuals. So 15 to four to 25 year olds is really what our focus was on. So we partnered with universities, colleges, and high schools to help create opportunities. And, and when I mean opportunities, it would be speaking opportunities, mentorship programs, you know, personal development sessions. And the realization that my co-founder and I had was the fact that we were very successful in Vancouver and the lower mainland of Vancouver, the suburbs, but we knew that we couldn't expand nationwide. It just was out of our scope. And then the large nationwide nonprofit that is focused on youth entrepreneurial ventures and personal development approached us and said that, you know, the stuff that you guys are doing fits nicely within our framework. And 
you know, it just made sense for us to merge. And we merged with an organization called the League of Innovators. So that's a, an organization that is a, an accelerator and incubator for entrepreneurial ventures. But it's also this component about personal and professional development that's been incorporated. So we've gone nationwide, and now I'm on the board of advisors as the board of edu- board of advisors for education. Since I come with that background and supporting the growth of League of Innovators, which is doing very well in Canada right now. Well, give those who are looking to be great storytellers as you are mm-hmm. some tips. Yeah, no, of course. So one of the things that I found is storytelling to me is is a very important piece with regards to how we connect and relate. And in fact, I like to always call it story sharing, because when I sit down with somebody, storytelling becomes unilateral, one directional, whereas story sharing means you and I are going to sit down and have a conversation. So when it became story sharing, the first TEDx speech that I did was on storytelling, discovering the extraordinary in the ordinary. And my realization was that we live in a world that's ordinary. I mean, the everyday, we have our routines, but embedded in the ordinary are these tremendously extraordinary experiences. There's a process in order to build those stories and those experiences. And I came up with this concept of what I call carpe. So carpe diem is seize the day, carpe is the process I go through to build my stories. So CARPE stands for curiosity, appreciation, reflection, perspectives, and experiences. So curiosity, we go through life in the ordinary, our routines, but embedded, you know, if somebody took a different pathway or just took a moment to just stop at lunchtime, you know, curiosity is we have that stops us and we start looking at things from a different lens. That's curiosity. Appreciation is that once we've stopped, we now appreciate something for more than what it is. So we start appreciating it. And we add significance through the R, which is reflection. We, we start adding purpose and meaning to it through reflection. Perspectives means we all have our own perceptions and perspectives. So if I see something, curiosity stopped me, I appreciate it, and I'm reflecting on it. Perspectives is adding even more depth to this. And E stands for experience. In other words, experience is capturing this as a story and not losing it. Because I think what happens oftentimes is we haven't we have something happen, but we never catalog it and it just sort of evaporates, vanishes. Story dies an untimely death, but you have to catalog it in your mind as an experience. And I'll give you an example of how the ordinary can be extraordinary. So one day I was heading towards the university and I parked my car and I'm walking to the campus. And I remember seeing a door. It was a bright, sunny day. The door was propped open with a wooden wedge doorstop. And I remember I stopped. There's the curiosity because I started looking at this wooden wedge doorstop, which is ordinary. It's, it's just a wedge of, of a piece of wood, but it's holding the door open. So curiosity stopped me. And I stood there and I started appreciating that wooden wedge doorstop for more than what it was doing. I mean, it's it's holding a door open, but I started saying there's something here. And I started reflecting while standing there. And I added purpose and meaning to it to say, okay, but what does this mean? And I started focusing on it. But my perspective started to kick in as well. And I realized that that doorstop, the purpose of it is to hold the door open. 
And then I started with my perspectives, realizing the doorstop, you know, we talk about how, you know, there are people in our lives who will open doors, but they don't just open doors, they hold the door open for us. So that wooden wedge doorstop suddenly became a, a reflection, an analogy for the many people who have many held, who have held the door open for me so I could go through in life. And then that just suddenly hit me to say that that doorstop is very representative of the people in my life who have helped me. And then the experience means I capture it as a story, as opposed to just saying, okay, well, that's cool. And then that way, when I'm speaking at an event, speaking to my students, or somebody's talking to me about, you know, mentorship and coaching, I can use this analogy because I've remembered it. So carpe, curiosity, appreciation, reflection, perspectives, experience. That's how I go about discovering the extraordinary in the ordinary and how I go about building my stories. Well, tell us about your journey to India and also talk about your book, because I know that's what your book is about. So tell listeners what they can expect when they read the book and talk about your journey to India and why you decide to make that trip. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things is that the book I wrote, Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself, is a memoir. It's my journey because I'm a British-born Canadian. My parents are from Fiji, and my grandparents come from India. So I always struggled with this piece of identity because I have multiple cultural and ethnic identities, British, Canadian, Fijian, Indian. And it's not uncommon for someone to say, okay, what part of India are you from? Because visibly, I look Indian. And I say, well, I was born in England, raised in Canada. They're like, no, no, what part of India are your parents from? And then I say, well, my parents come from Fiji. And they look at me and they scratch their head going like, but are you Indian? And I said, well, my grandparents and my ancestors come from India. So I, I always struggled with this piece on identity. But added to that, my grandfather left India in 1905. And he basically hopped on a steamer ship, wound up on his way to Argentina, but the boat stopped in Fiji and he got off there. And he never went back to India. So we, we became very disconnected to our ancestral village and our ancestral roots to India. We still had an understanding of the Indian culture, but we were far removed from it. So the book became this journey that I took to India to part of it was to realize my Indian identity or where that fit into this whole spectrum or this mosaic of my life. But added to that, I wanted to find my grandfather's house. And all I had to go by was a faded photograph. It's about three and a half inches by three and a half inches, dingy orange. It's old. So I had the photograph and I had very little information with regards to the name of the village. About five, six miles away is a town and it's in a district which is called Hushyarpur. So that's all I had to go by. So think of it as a foreigner going to a land that shouldn't be foreign to him in search of a needle in a haystack, but not knowing where the haystack exactly was. Now, with the identity piece, that's what I was able to, one of the things I was able to do was to realize my identity. So the way that I can best describe it is growing up in Canada, it's a predominantly, you know, white society, and you adopt your ways to being Canadian. I mean, 
you know, we play hockey, we eat hot dogs, we scrape our knees and we bleed maple syrup. I mean, we are Canadian. And I remember growing up in that environment. And while I fit in, part of me also felt like I didn't really fit in. And I segmented my life into British, Canadian, Fijian and Indian. So there's a dish in India or Indian cuisine called a tali. And a tali is a platter with segmented dishes. And that's what my life was. It was always segmenting. You know, if I was in, in the work environment or in school, Canadian identity played. If I went to an, a family gathering of people from Fiji, then that kicked in. So my life was always in a segment. But the realization I had when I was in India, I remember it was an epiphany, like at four in the morning, I just sat up that I was looking at this all wrong. Instead of looking at my life as a tali, which is a platter, I'm a rice dish called kichiri. And kichiri is this, it's the equivalent of, let's say, an omelet, where, you know, you go to your fridge, you pull some ingredients, but you mix it all up together, and that becomes, you know, an omelet or kichiri. And it's a blend of flavors. I'm a blend of cultures. So rather than segmenting my life, depending on which area or community I'm in, I realized, no, I can embrace all of them at the same time. And that's where lost and found seeking the past and finding myself, the realization of that was finding myself. The finding of the village was definitely more of a difficult search because we have very limited information and a faded photograph. And I remember there were some ups and downs, setbacks and challenges And it got to the point where I thought this was not going to materialize to the point where I basically just had to, at the end of it all, tell our driver, let's just get to the town that's supposed to be about six miles away and let's just talk to people. And that's what we did. So we started talking to people and somebody said, oh, well, eventually somebody said the village you're looking for, I think is up the road this way. And I was like, wait, are you sure? Because we had setbacks along the way. And he said, yeah, no, I think so. So reserved. I'm not getting too excited. I was before, but due to the setbacks, it just became problematic. And then I wound up, you know, we were driving along, came to this archway, and an old man was sitting there. We showed him this photograph, and he looked at it, and he said, well, I'm not sure about the house. There's a guy in the back. He sort of looks like this one person. But the challenge was, In all the places we had looked, that's what everyone always said. The guy in the back looks like so-and-so. So, again, I'm very reserved. But he says, okay. So he gets in our truck. We drive to a house. And people come out. And as they come out, they see this photograph. And all of a sudden, this one lady in the photograph said, wait, that's me in the photograph. Who are you? And I suddenly was like, wait, did I hear you right? Because I was very reserved in the sense that I don't think this is even going to happen. But when she said it, I had to say, could you that is you. And she goes, yeah, no, that's me in the picture. Who are you? And it was this sudden realization that I had found my grandfather's house and the people there were my grandfather's brother's family. And it was just this euphoric moment again, where, you know, through some, I don't know, unique circumstances and just going back to the basics of, I just, let's get to the town. Let's talk to people from the limited information we have that I was able to actually find my grandfather's house. And it just sort of resonates the fact that, you know, there was a lot of noise saying, you can't do it, you shouldn't do it. You know, why are you even bothering? 
you know, there were obstacles along the way, but through persistence, I was able to overcome these obstacles. So it became this beautiful story of searching for one's identity and one's past. And that's why the title is Lost and Found, Seeking the Past and Finding Myself. It's a beautiful story. Definitely is. Another beautiful story is the tips that you could give all the inspiring writers out there. So what kind of helpful tips can you provide for them? For the writers out there, there's, I remember the very first book I wrote, I had never written a book before. So this uh, Lost and Found is my second book. The first book is about personal storytelling, discovering the extraordinary and the ordinary. And there's something I wrote in the beginning of that first book, which is there is fear in me in writing this book because of what people might think. They might judge me. But the bigger fear is, what if I don't do this? So for those authors out there, don't go and write a book because you want to make all this money or you think that you've got the next bestseller. It is a difficult process that you go through. Write because you have something to share. And for me as well, like I find that, you know, when I was trying to figure out who the audience might be that, you know, would like to read this book, I found it really difficult to write because I was trying to fit to who the audience might be. But when I stopped thinking about that and I started writing for myself, the words just flowed. So I think one thing I would suggest, well, two things. Number one, don't go into this thinking you're going to make a lot of money because you got the next bestseller. The second thing is write for yourself and instead of the audience, because I know some people will will definitely say, no, you're wrong. You should be writing for an audience. But I just know that from an authentic voice, it materialized when I actually focused on, you know, what I needed to share. The other part I want to share with uh, your audience about this is there's a two-part process here. And they're both very difficult. The first part is the actual writing of a book. It is difficult. It is challenging and all-consuming. Because really what you're doing is putting your thoughts down. And what I would say is, you know, just get your thoughts down and don't worry about grammar, punctuation, none of that stuff. Just, you know, put it down, you know, in a document or start capturing these thoughts and ideas in, in a document that doesn't even make sense at this point. And then start pulling it and, and connecting these pieces and parts together. And then you'll find that you start having this, this book. The second part, though, which is equally, I mean, as an author, when that final copy after the edits, copy edits and proofreading is done and you've designed a cover with somebody or you've done it yourself and that book first arrives in your hands. Oh, it's it's a magical moment. You're just like all my hard work is here. But that's only half the journey. The equal difficult journey happens as soon as you get the book in your hands. How do I now get the audience interested in buying this book? And that is difficult to do as well. Many authors, they're great at writing, but they're not great with self-promotion. Or they think that the book is just going to start selling itself, which it doesn't. And you have to start earlier. You want to get some endorsements. You want to get some acknowledgments. Start early. And you, I mean, I've built relationships with people who have then become people that have endorsed my books, you know, so build those relationships early. And the last thing I want to share about anybody who wants to be this, this budding author 
is that there's three different methods that I would suggest that you can pursue. There's self-publishing, traditional publishing, and a hybrid model. So self-publishing is where you create all the content and you upload it to any number of different places or sites that provides a platform. And then it's up to you to then venture out, sell the book and you know, do your own marketing or hire somebody to do the marketing for you. Traditional publishing is it's really difficult because you need to get an agent, somebody who feels that minimum your book is going to sell 20, 60, 100,000 million copies. They're investing in you because they see the potential, but they're going to be guiding and directing the process along the way. And then the third one is a hybrid model, which is in between the two, which means it's a bit like self-publishing and a bit like the traditional publishing model, because they're there to help create the content and build it. But equally, it's, it's on you to work on it as well. The best way for me to create an analogy is if you looked at self-publishing, you're going to build a car, but you're going to build it by yourself with IKEA instructions and parts that might be missing. And you have no idea the direction you're going to go. Traditional publishing is you've said you want to build a car and you've created the framework, but now the traditional publishing company is now the restoring company. They're going to basically rip out quarter panels. They're going to put new engine in, new wheels and everything. And they're going to drive the car and you're in the back seat not knowing exactly where you go, but you're going to be somewhat involved. Hybrid model, you're going to build the car with another company together. And you're going to collaborate and work on it. And at the end, you're going to be driving the car. They're in the front seat, supporting and guiding you in the direction you need to go. So those are the three different methods that you may want to look at with regards to putting the book out. But the last thing I want to share on this being an author piece is don't think that, you know, your story is not worth sharing. I still feel there's a huge need for you to go out there and and do this so that you become that published author and that you you've got this as a as a perpetuity that this book is there for you and never feel like you're not the expert, because once you put the book out Regardless if it's got research or no research, but you're putting it out there, you now become an expert in a particular segment, a particular way that you want to do this. So my thing is just you have to do it, but learn along the way and know that there are these two processes, the creation of the book and then the publishing and getting it out there. Those are those are the two parts that uh, that happen. And both times it literally feels like you're pushing a boulder up a hill and uh with Lost and Found, I'm in the process right now, just finalized it is um, the book is there. So it's in a paperback, ebook, audiobook, but I've just finished working on the screenplay. And hopefully somebody picks it up as a, as a nice story that might venture out, but I'm open to it. And equally at the same time, it may not go anywhere. But if I don't do any of this, none of it ever happens. So for me, it's all about the activation piece and doing something that really matters to me. Well, tell us about connectiveness and your puzzle analogy. Of course. So the idea is, I think that, you know, oftentimes what I find is that, you know, we we feel very distant from each other or we have our our lives. And again, it goes back to that ordinary and extraordinary piece. And what I do is I carry with me puzzle pieces. At the end of my very last lecture, 
of the semester or when I sit down and I have a conversation with somebody of which I'm actually going to be doing this again tomorrow because I have a conversation with somebody. I take my satchel of puzzle pieces and I pull one single piece out. And I often tell people, and I hand them this one piece and I said, you know, I want you to have this. And they look at it and they said, okay. And I said, I've just given you one piece of a jigsaw puzzle. What can you do with one piece? And then they look at it and they said, well, not much. It's just one piece. And I said, exactly. It's ordinary. But right before your eyes, I'm going to make it extraordinary. And they look at me and I said, this single piece that I'm now sharing with you, this is what you feel like. This is who you are. You're like the single piece of a jigsaw puzzle because you don't know where you fit in. And you also don't know what the bigger picture is. But right before your eyes, magically, I'm going to transform it into extraordinary. And they sit there and they anticipate. And I said, because instead of looking at the single piece I've just given you, and I show them the satchel that I'm holding, I said, you do realize I've just given you a piece of my puzzle. And as a result, my puzzle is now permanently incomplete without you. Do you realize I can't finish it now without you because you hold a piece of my puzzle? And Curtis, I physically see a transformation in their face because now somebody has said how much they matter. I've had people tell me, and I've given about 5,000 pieces in the world to date to remind people how important they are. And people have said, you know, they've taped it onto their mirrors because somebody told them how important they are and that they matter. It's traveled in backpacks around the world. It's in curio boxes. It's in wallets. And, you know, people will meet me at an event and they pull out the puzzle piece and they say, look, it's still with me. It's just this reminder of connectedness to say, again, reframing it, looking at it from a different lens instead of focusing on the obvious of that single piece of a jigsaw puzzle, start focusing on the extraordinary piece of I belong to someone else's puzzle piece or puzzle. And the fact is that every one of your listeners, not realizing it, they're not a single piece of a jigsaw puzzle. They are a component of other people's puzzles, but then other people are components of their puzzle as well. But that's the puzzle analogy and connectedness. Well, I know you got your screenplay that you're working on, but what other projects are you working on that people need to know about? Yeah, I mean, it's been great. I mean, whether it's teaching, the screenplay, speaking on podcasts, I'm also building out retreats on personal and professional development. Again, just it's all about trying to help individuals. Uh, I'm also, again, working with uh, still nonprofits to try to get them to become more entrepreneurial. So they're not the traditional sort of nonprofits still going to carry on having these three to eight conversations a week, support and help people. And, and the reason Curtis is I've been given so much in life as experiences, but I'm not allowed to hold on to them. I have to give them away. And the more I give away, the more richness comes back to me. And that's just this perpetual cycle that I'm on. But it's all about leading a purposeful and fulfilling life. And I just get to do all these amazing things. And uh, I feel very fortunate that I get to do this. Well, go ahead and throw out your contact information so people can keep up with all the amazing things that you are doing. Thanks, Curtis. I mean, I, what I would say is I've got a website and it's got about 185 blog posts and they're all free for people to see. But the website is www.sam-thiara, T-H-I, 
ara.com. But there you'll find out about the book, the, the speaking opportunities or blog posts, all of that stuff is there. I'm also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. So people can easily follow me there as well. Close us out with some final thoughts, maybe anything that I missed out on that you would like to touch on or just more advice or story or whatever you want to close it out with. Yeah, I think that there are two quotes that I want to share that I think, well, I live by, but I think are really important. The first one is obstacles are the necessary bricks on a road to success. You're going to face obstacles in life, rejections. It's not that you have to enjoy it, but just realize that those obstacles are there as opportunities. So obstacles are the necessary bricks on the road to my success. Don't fear the obstacles, embrace them, learn from them, and emerge stronger. And the second quote I want to leave you with, it's my signature tagline. Everyone's life is an autobiography. Make yours worth reading. Every one of us is a living story. Every one of us is writing an autobiography page by page, chapter by chapter, section by section. Go out and live your life. And it doesn't mean you have to go out and do these dangerous things, but just discover the extraordinary out of the ordinary and realize that you are a living story, one that needs to be shared. That's what I would like to do. Ladies and gentlemen, Sam Theara, be sure to check out his website, his book, and everything that he is up to straight from Canada. Please be sure to follow, rate, review, share this episode to as many people as possible. And Android listeners, go download the Living the Dream with Curveball podcast app from the Google Play Store. Sam, thank you so much for gracing us with your presence. Thank you, Curtis. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.